Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to today's episode on an abundance of skeletons. <laughs> I knew she'd be so excited if I said it in such the perfect way. We were very pumped about this name. <laughs> and how we arrived at it, or how Lindsay arrived at it, I should say, is initially we were going to do an entire show on a lake in India that has like 800 skeletons in it. And then we went down the rabbit hole and found that there are a lot of weird skeletons all over the world. And so we picked a couple to review. There's also deviant burials, which I didn't know was a term Mm -mm. before. And I was like, I need to know everything now. Yeah. I absolutely need to know everything. Yeah. So we decided because there is an abundance of weird skeletons around the globe, that's what we'd call it. Well, before we start our dig, let's talk just a little bit of housekeeping. Amanda can't look at me because that sick transition just now. Okay, so we've mentioned it a few times before. We're going to keep it short and sweet. You leave us a review, email us that review and your address. We'll send you a sticker. Reviews help us out, help other people find us and help move us all around in all the podcasting world. If you listen to podcasts, you know that already. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you to those that have taken the time to do that. Means the world to us. Like the absolute world. Because we work so hard on this and hearing that other people actually like are enjoying it and like getting into it. 10 out of 10. Very happy. Five stars of excitement. It very much makes our day. And we also did launch our Patreon. We've discussed it. If you want to hang till the end of the episode, we'll discuss it again. It's a lot of fun. We have a lot of cool things. We have a lot of tears. We're excited for what we've (laughs) designed for it. So excited. And we're also excited about the community building portion of it. I don't know about you, Amanda, but I know like I feel like I've talked to a lot of my friends like individually about each episode. They're like, oh, my God, like X, Y, Z. So I'm excited to like connect everyone and be like, look, we all want to talk about the thing again. (laughs) Yeah, I want to hear everyone's theories. I want to be able to talk back and forth about their theories on some of the episodes that we've done and some of the upcoming episodes. So join our Bat Bonfire. Yeah. For a mere $1 a month. That's our lowest tier. It's called Mittens. We'll talk about it later. But that's just our, our, our briefest little teaser about it. Also, excitingly, we've launched our merch store. You can head over to our website to check out all of our fun new stuff. We've got t-shirts, mugs. Okay, so we talked about cadaver dogs and crime-fighting critters, which I felt very emotional about because these are hardworking dogs. But just as like the briefest of recaps, cadaver dogs are specially trained dogs that train over the course of 18 to 24 months to be able to find human remains. And I always thought they were kind of the same as search and rescue dogs, but search and rescue dogs search for live humans, cadaver dogs search for not. Yep. Hence the name cadaver. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, or anything left over from a dead body. Yeah. Any partial remains or full remains. But so interestingly, right, like you think cadaver dogs, dead humans. I guess in my brain, I was always like the recently deceased, right? Past 10 years. But no, cadaver dogs are also used for archaeology sites to help find remains like where they should be digging. And they've alerted to remains that were buried in the ninth century. That's incredible. Insane! Insane! And just the thought of a little doggy archaeologist just makes me so happy. I just uh, imagine them wearing a lot of tan and like a little hat. 
Yeah. They also have spectacles, round ones, tip of the nose. Yeah, of course. Clearly. Uh, khaki leash. It feels right. Absolutely. With a lot of pockets. And um, just for the pure science of it, they carry a small brush in their mouth. That's paleontologist probably, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, but archaeologist dogs. I love that. I, I just kind of, yeah. I happened upon it when we were researching and I was like, Amanda, did you know? <laughs> and like, I was like sending her pictures. She was like, oh my God. Because so pumped about the idea of archaeology. And again, if we can bring dogs into this, we're going to. And, and just a, a quick little thing back to our Patreon. If you're in our bat bonfire, we could also share these ridiculous photos that we find with you immediately. Oh, and just try and stop. <laughs> yeah, I think that's how that's probably not one of the things that we officially list on the tiers, but we definitely will have sneak peeks here and there. We will veer off quite a bit as we do in our episodes. Because, yeah, I mean, when we were doing, I think it was sea creatures, the things that I was Googling, I started screenshotting what I was Googling and adding it to our research doc. And it was like underwater aliens. Blue hole aliens? Question mark. <laughs> we kind of have a chat going on everything whenever we're researching, whether it be our yeah. documents, yeah. our chats, in people's posts on Facebook, just everywhere you can imagine a chat going between us, it's going. Anyways, so originally, like I mentioned, we were exploring a, a lake of skeletons in India, and we were absolutely fascinated that that even existed. Right? And in 1942, a British forest ranger was patrolling and found a partially frozen lake with human remains. Terrifying. Already weird, right? Notifies it. That's a bad day, by the way. Like, <laughs> it's a very bad day. You're just like on your little horse, like living your life. It seems like a very rough area. But from what I understand, it went worldwide because they're like, this was found. And people are like, but what is it? So what is believed is that this area contains anywhere from 600 to 800 skeletons. That's a lot of skeletons. I also feel like 200 is a really big range. You know what I mean? It, it is. And there's a reason why there's a range. I know. I know that there's a reason. And I don't like it. You don't like it. I was expecting you to say that's a lot of skellies in that lake. I don't know why or when, but I started referring to skeletons as skellies. And I, I don't like it about myself, but it is where we are. I guess it's what I needed to do in order to be cool with talking about 800 dead bodies. Fair. We turned it into Skelly. It's cute now. It is. Yeah, that's a cute skeleton name. I've almost said it like four times already. So I figured when it does drop accidentally, then we're, we're covered. <laughs> You've been warned. <laughs> it might slip, guys. Yeah. You've been warned. So we're going to talk a little bit about the geography of this particular lake. Because, Amanda, when you think lake... What do you imagine? A body of water. That is right. But do you just like, I think I imagine like American terrain. So I think of like, you can like walk right up to it easily and leave. Yeah, like there's maybe some cute woods. So you can have like a woods moment and then there's like a road and you can get on the get and go home. And it's like this very accessible place that is also water, not ice. Right. A little off topic. Please. <laughs> I had to look at lake water under a microscope many years ago. That doesn't sound like it's going to be good. And I have not gone inside a lake since. Is it dirty? It's terrible. It's so scary. There's a lot of things happening. I feel like most water is going to have that. Most water. But also when you think of, I went swimming in that lake once. That lake went swimming in you. It's more like uh, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I refuse to look at ocean water under a microscope because I still like the ocean. I know you don't. I do. But since then, 
I refuse. And on that thought, I will not look at any other water under a microscope again because it'll ruin everything for me. Well, I don't think you're wrong. And this one has skeletons in it, too. So it's just what else could be in there? I mean, here's my thing is that I would imagine someone stumbles upon a lake of skeletons. What should happen? All of the skeletons would be removed from the lake for analysis. I'm just going to give you a spoiler alert. That's not what happened. No. They're just there. But before we get to that, the official name of this lake is Rubicon Lake. And the local officials call it Mystery Lake, which is a lot more palatable than Skeleton Lake. I can understand. Mm -hmm. It's in the Indian Himalayas. It's inside of a snowy valley and it's 16,500 feet above sea level. So it's like high but low at the same time. It's the base of this mountain. Mm-hmm. And so the mountain in around the valley is one of the steepest slopes in India. Yeah. If you're listening at home, are you understanding the picture that we're painting that this is a hard as fuck place to get to? It's weird. It's difficult. <laughs> That's the scientific term for. Hey, you know me, <laughs> valleyologist. I'm no scientist. The lake itself is two meters deep and it's 40 meters wide. I did not convert that, but it's a lake. To me, in my brain, I was like, meh, it's wide and deep. The end. More wide than it is deep. It's frozen eight months out of the year. I'm also no lake scientist, but I feel like there needs to be a difference between big pieces of ice and lakes because this feels like just like a big piece of ice that sometimes is less ice. You know, (laughs) that's exactly what it is. And when they talk about what happens in that area, that's exactly what I thought. I was just like, okay, it's this big ice chunk that hangs out there and then sometimes it melts a little bit. Yeah. It's a skeleton ice cube. Yeah, it's it's a skeleton ice cube is what it is. And not ice that's shaped like a skelly. It's skellies in ice. Yeah. If you will. So in case this area already didn't seem rough enough, there's also rock slides and there's giant hailstorms. And Amanda, have you ever encountered hail? So yeah, yes, actually, you wouldn't believe it. But years ago in Phoenix, there was a really bad hailstorm and it caused a lot of vehicle damage. From what I saw, I didn't experience these ones, but some were like golf ball size from what I understand. That's massive. So looking at this, I was like, oh my gosh, it gets worse. Yeah. Well, and see, the hail that I've encountered was like, think of like a chocolate chip. It was like that kind of size. Yeah. Did that stop my husband from being very worried about his car? No. But little pieces of like cute ice kind of falling down and where you hear this like kind of sound, right? Yeah. That's not the hailstorms they have there. They're cricket-sized balls. And at first I was like, are they measuring them with the size of bugs? No, like cricket, (laughs) the sport. The balls are so basically between the size of a golf ball and baseball, which, goodness. That's too big. That's a big ball. You know what I'm saying? Like that's... That's terrifying. Of ice just raining down, very intense. But so this area has never been part of a trade route, but it is part of a pilgrimage route. We'll get some more about that later. But so there's no direct roads and it's a three to four day trek just to get there. So, yeah, like she said, from anywhere else near it, it's a three to four day expedition to get there. So it's like you can't just drive up to it and check it out. In my mind, that's why it's so hard to analyze everything, too, because think about it. You can't just like drive up with trucks and grab everything easily. It's hard to get to. Yeah, there was one article that I read where there was a scientist who was working with collecting bones and remains and they couldn't go because it was like too treacherous of a journey for them. And that wasn't where they were experienced. And they were like really upset because it was obviously very difficult to get to. Yeah. 
There's not any places in my immediate vicinity where where our government couldn't get to if they wanted to. Right. I can't imagine an ice skeleton lake in America where they weren't like, let's figure this out because our terrain is so different, though. Right. Right. Understandably. Yeah. It's hard to get to. Yeah. And then on top of it with the crazy hailstorms, rock slides, all of that. No one really wants to go there. Except those that do want to go there. You. Unfortunately, there's been a lot of damage done to the skeletons. People are not only damaging them, they are stacking them and creating these weird sculptures out of them. And then even worse, they are stealing pieces of the skeleton and taking them home. You know, just a casual house skeleton. Do you know who would have loved this? H.H. Holmes. Oh, yeah. Would have loved some free skeletons. He would have. You're right. But when you actually like Google it, you see a bunch of like Mm -hmm. skeleton piles that people have made. And it makes me sad because those were people. It's bizarre. It's just so inconsiderate and horrible. I hate it. But it's very interesting. So there wasn't a full-on study of every single skeleton. Understandably, we're missing pieces. We even could be missing whole skeletons. We don't know. That's why it's a vast difference in the amount that they believe are there. The Department of Biotechnology and Council for Scientific and Industrial Research gave the Cellular and Molecular Biology Organization three years to study the skeletal remains. It looked like they were giving them three years until they opened it as an ecotourism spot. So the tests that they did, they revealed that the skeletons had injuries to the skull consistent to an avalanche or a blizzard. You know what I'm not hearing? The Atlas? I'm not hearing anything about tongues and eyes being removed. They don't have tongues or eyes, Lindsay. They don't have tongues or eyes. And like we say lake of skeletons, but from some of the things that I saw, there was flesh intact for some of them. Interesting. Not most of them. But I feel like if they had been scavenged, you also would have seen scratches on the bones. In one of the clips that I watched about this lake, they also mentioned that some had some injuries, others didn't, but they weren't combat injuries. They didn't think that they came from combat, which I thought was interesting. From what I saw, it looked as though they theorized that it was likely from the hail or rock slides, which if the weather is that aggressive, that absolutely could take somebody down and a whole group of people, right? Like if you're just like walking in the mountains, you don't have a hard hat on and somebody starts lobbing ice at your head, you're not going to do great. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. One of the, the biggest mysteries is how did all of them die? And we don't know. So some of them had a more than average stature after looking into them a little bit more. They ranged from about 35 to 40 years old, and there were very few elderly women. Oddly enough, there were no children, which I guess I'm happy for. But it also takes away where these people came from, because you would think like if they were moving or like it was a pilgrimage, there would be all different stages of life present. I don't know. I mean, I'm honestly, I'm not really familiar with Hindu pilgrimages, but I would imagine that for some place as treacherous as this, they might decide to not bring children or people who, you know, it might, it might be a smaller group of people who are more skilled or less likely to be taken down by the world. Yeah, that makes sense. But the majority of them were young adults. And then what they noticed too, is they were all in pretty good health. So that kind of goes hand in hand with what you just said. All the skeletons were from the same catastrophic event that would have occurred in the ninth century. They believed this for a while, and then they did other studies and found that some were actually a little bit different. 
which was interesting that they were able to, you know, differentiate because in my mind, I'm like, that was forever ago. But they're like, nope, this was ninth century. These ones were a different era and they died in different times, yet they're still in the same area. I don't know. That's just odd. Yeah, I think that's one of the weirdest things is that, and, and we'll get into it in a minute, just the varying degrees within this one area. So we hinted at the fact that the theory changed, but the reason that it did was because there was a five-year study that had 28 different co-authors from 16 institutions from India, Germany, and the United States. And the lead author was Eudean Harney of Harvard. And so they did three different tests. One test was for age, another was for genetic ancestry, and the third was to determine what their diet was, which I thought was very interesting. I think that was a way to kind of like back up where they were living. Yeah, I think it was to differentiate like where they would have come from, because for what I was reading, one of the reasons they look at diet is to decipher if they lived closer to the inland versus closer to the water. Oh, that makes sense. Because if you saw, yeah, a lot of like fish and everything in their diet, then you would guess that they live near a water or a body of water versus inland seem to have more land creatures. Yeah, which would make sense. What they did was they looked at 38 different skeletons. There were no babies or children. They also found an absence of weapons and there wasn't any trade goods. The trade goods make sense because we assumed that this was not a trade route because this seems silly, right? It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. But the second there was no weapons recovered is a little bit interesting because one of the theories is that at least some portion of these individuals were an invading army going to Tibet. So it's interesting that they wouldn't have any weapons found with them. Right. All of the skeletons were relatively healthy, except there were three that had compressed fractures. Which could be avalanche, right? Yeah. And they also theorized that it may have been hail, which again, makes sense. We're going to unpack some of the theories later on, but ones that are disproven by this study, we're just going to kind of touch on them as we go. So another theory was that there was some type of pathogen in that area that was infecting the various people who were traveling through. So the way that they tested the bones was that they drilled into the femur bone, pulled out the dust, and then analyzed that dust. And that's a very simplified version of very intense science. You're not a scientist. Guys, I'm not a scientist. I don't know if you know this. I'm not a scientist. But so there wasn't any evidence of a bacterial infection. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily there's no chance that it was because it could have just not been very concentrated in the bone. But interestingly, they didn't find any. Now, this is what I think shocked everyone. There were three different groups of people that died at Skeleton Lake. The first in the study is called Rubkin A, and they were from various Southern Asian countries. And this was 23 people. They were on a genetic gradient, which is how the researchers describe the fact that they were not from a single geographic area. Another interesting fact about Rubkin A is that they died a thousand years before the people in Rubkin B and C, which blew everybody's mind because they were like a thousand years. It's an incredible amount of time, right? Yeah. It's fascinating that they can actually find that information out, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I was like, woo, I had chills when I read it. I was like, that's fascinating. And it also, it makes this all the more mysterious because one big event was already like, wow, that's crazy. We didn't know about this. But the fact that there were at least two different things that happened to these groups of people, strange. Now, it gets a little weirder. So in all the groups, there were no relatives, Yeah, no one was related to each other. Yeah, and they tested them within a third degree. So, but there weren't any relatives, which was interesting because if you would think of a pilgrimage, you would think that their people would be relatives, right? That you would at least like be related to somebody. 
So in Rubkin A, these 23 people, they died between the 7th and 10th centuries. That in and of itself is a big gap, right? And the deaths are 95% non-overlapping, which means that they died along that time period. They didn't all die in one event. It was like little by little by little by little, which is interesting because some of these people may not have even been alive and there at the same time. It was people from the same area in the same place that died in this kind of similar-ish way, right? I wonder if it was like a rescue mission that just kept turning into more rescue missions, right? Like think of Bermuda Triangle when they sent the rescue mission in and they also disappeared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the way that they describe like an example of the non-overlapping is that they give the skeletons like numeric identifiers. So individual 16943, they died sometime between 675 and 700. 169, right? While individual 16941 died in sometime between 894 and 985. So like those are giant gaps. Like they wouldn't have overlapped in kind of like seeing each other. And when you think 23 people dying over two centuries. Right. They never even met. Yeah, they never met. Maybe they're ghosts. So that's weird, right? Let's add a little something else. The men and women had very similar proportions, which is interesting, right? And so one of the things that you can do when looking at a skeleton is you can see how muscular someone was based on markings on the bones, which blows my mind. Isn't that weird to think of that you can tell that? Yeah. I just figured it was like, this is not a good description. So just follow me here. Like a clothing rack that you hang clothes on. Just a little meat sack. Like, who knew? Who knew? So sophisticated, this structure of mine. <laughs> I'm like, we're clothing racks. Hang different clothes on outside. But I was like, no, but they're not. They, they can see differences in your skeleton. In your skeleton. They can see how muscular you were. So similarly, like muscular. And also compared to other people from South Asia, they were larger and they were taller and more robust, which makes me think more muscular. Thinking like Olympians, like they were the they were the athletes sent to go to this treacherous place for whatever reason. And they theorize that this supports the idea that this was a, like a military group. But it's still interesting to me because we're still just talking about 23 people. Now, keep in mind, right? There's still skellies in that lake, baby. So there could be more from Rubkin A in the lake still. We don't know. That we don't know. We don't know what the full populations of these groups are. And that's just what's left in the lake because some sick fucks took skelly souvenirs on the way home. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes it harder to actually find like a concrete reason why they might have been there. Because let's say, yeah, they only have 23 here. What if there was 400? You know, like if it was some crazy big amount, then yeah, maybe it was a big army or maybe it was 23 and it was hunters. 23 versus 100 is quite a big of a difference. Yeah, exactly. Well, and what's interesting too is that scholars have looked in like various different histories and also they've analyzed oral traditions and they aren't finding a group of people who were there. There's no written records. Yeah. Yeah, there's no written records of what these people were doing there, which to me feels like, you know what that makes me go to? Aliens. I'm just going to say it. Alien dumping ground. In the ice. Anywho, let's continue on. Rubkin B. Okay, so Rubkin B was... 14 people and they're from the eastern mediterranean and this is europe the near east and iran i've also seen it described as crate or greece as well kind of like a mixture of there yeah and so their deaths range from the 17th century to the 20th century 
So again, we have a really long time span. Yeah. I feel like 14 people dying in a single place in the span of 300 years doesn't feel abnormal, right? It feels like a random lake. It feels like a random lake, right? With like ice falling from the sky. So interesting. And here, there's not a genetic gradient. So all of these people are from Greece and Crete. Which is, I find, very interesting. So this is actually, like, not as a diverse population. And right. there were two genetic outliers that were just in, like, another Mediterranean area. So for Rubkin C, there was one person in their sample of 38. And they were genetically similar to present-day Southeastern Asian people. And I mention them now because they get a little bit lumped in with Rubkin B in terms of analysis, B and C have a 95% overlapping confidence intervals. What does that mean? It means that they were more likely to have died from a single event. That's interesting. Like multiple events that killed a mass number of people at various times in the same area. Yes. Yes. And so it is a little interesting because how they describe it, right? Like you're like, okay, they died from the 17th to 20th century. I don't know if that means that they died throughout that period or if it was one event during that time. Well. Some of the theories said maybe it was a giant hailstorm that doesn't happen all the time, but ever so often, and then that would have killed everyone in a group. Historians have looked at Rupkin B and Rupkin C as well, and there's no reason that they can find in their history or archives of travel as to why this group of people may have been there. Right. And for all we know, maybe climate has varied at various parts of the centuries, right? Maybe it wasn't what it is now. You know, like maybe they just went to that lake to get water or to fish or to do something and something happened. That's true. I will say that the pilgrimages that go and we'll go through them in a minute, but I'm pretty sure that the types of weather anomalies like the hail have been happening for centuries and centuries and centuries at this location. So even if they had just gone there to get some water, I still think they could have died from the same weather anomaly. Well, yeah, the weather, but I'm saying it's just kind of how they're encased. Yeah, I got you. When they would go, because like right now it's a big ice cube most of the time. So like you're not going to go there to fish. Yeah. But maybe they did at one point. I also saw where some folks thought that maybe they were higher up on the mountain and that when snow melted, maybe it pulled the bones down. And we know that there's like hundreds of people frozen in Mount Everest, right? Yeah. Well, and we've learned a lot about avalanches in the last couple months as well. Yeah. I didn't realize that there were so many different types. I feel like I should have known that, but yeah, maybe they were on top of the mountain, like you said, and that avalanche happened, threw them down there. Horrific hail happened too, for some reason. We don't know. So there's a couple different theories as to why these people were here. One of the theories is based off of what I found is a folk song in some of the nearby villages. And when I think of like old timey songs, right, I think of things here, like Ring Around the Rosies, right? Like, and that refers to something that's devastating and horrible. And I'm like, well, maybe this is what they're talking about, right? Is all of these people dying in this weird lake. Yeah, and that would be an interesting way of passing it down orally and why you wouldn't see it written because there was a folk song about it and it was passed down that way. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, you're right. So and if I butcher any of these names, I'm so sorry. But the lake is on a pilgrimage trail for Nanda Devi. And what she is is a manifestation of a Hindu goddess, Parvati. A local legend said that a distant king made her angry and then she unleashed a big drought amongst the kingdom, right? As you do. As you do. So to try to make her happy, the king then set off a pilgrimage and it took him and some of his people past this area. 
And when they were on this pilgrimage, the king brought dancers and other luxuries. As you do. And that was essentially like disgraceful to her, bringing that sort of thing to that area. So it pissed her off even more. And so what she decided to do is make a hailstorm that would kill the king and his people that were on this pilgrimage. And I've seen it referred to also as iron balls in the sky. I'm sure it felt like that. Uh, Exactly, right? Like, think of a big hail hitting someone. Yeah, an iron ball totally makes sense. So, yeah, I mean, if this song was based off of what actually happened, it would describe how some of these bodies were found. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I think so. Maybe it was her. She got real pissed off. Yeah, I think so. And so from what I understand, too, the pilgrimage still occurs every 12 years. I wonder if anybody has been lost recently and like how they because I would imagine nowadays they would bring their remains back because people would ask questions, right? They'd be like, where's so and so? Right, exactly. And then more people will go and more people hopefully don't get killed by hail. Hopefully. So something else that I saw is some people speculate that some of the population of skeletons uh, of the ones that are from Central Asians could possibly be descendants from Alexander the Great and his armies. Huh. That's an interesting theory. Right. I don't know why they would go to that. Maybe just the time frame would make sense. Yeah. Hmm. I I saw that there might be more studies coming. I also saw that they're not sure what's going to happen. So I I really, truly don't know what's going to go on with this lake, if we'll ever find out what actually happened to all these people, or if it's even still occurring. So there's Catherine Morrison, and she's the chair of the anthropology department of the University of Pennsylvania. And I really agreed with her assessment of this, which was it doesn't so much matter who they were, it's why they were there. Because that's kind of (laughs) sad. It it is sad. But when we're trying to figure out like what happened there and why there are so many skeletons, sure, it does matter who these people were. But in the same respect, to uncover that mystery, we need to know why they were there more than the who. And while understanding their diet is fascinating, I don't don't think it's as important as like if you had to analyze you know a hundred skeletons for where they were from right versus 38 skeletons and to be able to tell that they had yeah a more coastal diet i think it was interesting how they determined what they were going to research but i mean you know i don't know what their constraints were but i thought it was interesting that there was another scholar who was like yeah we need to figure out why they were there not who they were yeah i i can see it it's just more i want to know all of it (laughs) All of it. I want to, I mean, I do. I I always kind of want to know all of all the things. So, you know. Okay. So continuing on. Yeah, fair. In our episode of, to a certain extent, that is, what the fuck is going on with the skeleton, is our next one, which is a root skelly. So in the 2000s, a 215-year-old birch tree fell over during a storm in Ireland and revealed that there was a skeleton tangled in its roots. Strange. Yeah. So a local archaeological service checked out the remains and they found that they had been the remains of a 17 to 20 year old man that had been stabbed multiple times in his chest. And that he also had cuts on his hands, which suggested defensive wounds. He had died 900 to 1000 years ago. And just as like another interesting note, he was abnormally tall for that period. He was 5'10", which was much taller than people were at that point. And they don't know if he died in combat or if it was like a murder. I think murder. It seems like everyone's murdering these tall people. So I think me and you are good. Fair. We are good. Five two, baby. <laughs> so another group of skeletons that we were fascinated with is the revenant skellies, as Lindsay would call them. 
And there was a documentary that Lindsay stumbled on called Vampire Skeletons on Prime. And we both watched it. And it was fascinating because they not only show what they're doing, they interview scientists about it, but they actually talk to like the archaeologists that are finding these bones and they describe what they look like. And in some cases, you see what they're finding and it, it shows kind of the process that they go through when they find these skeletons. Probably boring for some, but to me, I'm like, oh, look at how much time goes into this. There were five interesting experts that were interviewed during this and they kind of play a role here and there throughout the documentary. So there's John Blair of the University of Oxford, Brian Reed, who's an archaeologist and project lead from Sligo Institute of Technology, Mark Horton, who I believe is another archaeologist, Dr. Katerina McKenzie of Queen's University in Belfast, and then Dr. Lisa Smith from the University of Saskatchewan. And all of those people gave a lot of information and educated me on what a skeleton can show them. And also, I learned a lot about decomposition that I didn't know about before. Yes. So what this focused on is skeletons that have been found that appeared to have been mutilated after death. So some of the ones that they explored were things like rocks shoved into their jaws, various pieces of the body taken out later, a lot of different things, right? What I learned is people shove rocks into someone's jaw forcefully until the jaw bone breaks. And the reason is the stone is said to stop the soul from re-entering the body and reanimating it. Isn't that weird? Ugh. It hurts to think about. Does it hurt for you to think about? Because it hurts to even think about for me. I think it's more weird that they think that the soul just enters into the mouth. You know, like, because you see like the soul in like cartoons and everywhere. I mean, not saying it's cartoon like, but like they can come in anyway and leave. They just leave through the body, but they only can come back in through the mouth. That is very specific. Yeah. And the actual skeletons that they show, they have these giant gray rocks shoved into the mouths as they're finding them. It's insane. Yeah, like think the size of, I don't know, the average hand of an adult. That's how big it is. It would be a heavy stone if you were to just pick it up. Yeah, exactly. So on top of that, there's also iron nails being hammered into various spots of the body. Iron stakes stabbed through the body. And the chest specifically as well. Yeah. Heads removed, hearts removed, and bodies being speared after death. All to make sure that they don't get back up. Yeah. Blew my mind. Yeah, again, like it was only what, like an hour long? And I'm like, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. So one of the terms that I learned was the term deviant burials. And archaeologists call them that because they deviate from the norm. So they're not characteristic for burials of that period. So something is odd about that said body, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this practice of deviant burials has been seen in Europe, including Ireland, Czech Republic and Northern England. Also, we talked about decomposition and some interesting things we learned. One of the things that I didn't know was that, okay, you bury someone in a dirt grave without a casket. I imagined decomposition and like worms feeding, right? Right. Same. Yeah. If you are squeamish and or this is offensive to you, I'm sorry. I have a very like cavalier thought of like what happens to our bodies when we die. Like I'm like, oh, this is just a meat sack. But I, and I know to a lot of people that's not the case. But so I always thought that it was just like you became one with the earth in this kind of lovely way. That is not what happens. The pressure from the ground mixed with the chemical processes that are happening in the body will make your body explode. 
Yeah. And there have been accounts of people who used to walk by graveyards back when there were these kind of dirt burials. And then they would hear like pop, pop, pop. And it was the decomposing bodies exploding underground. And so one of the reasons why we bring this up when we talk about burials is because you lay a person to rest in a certain position. You dig them back up. They're not going to be in the same position if they've begun to decompose. Right. And that's something that I knew, but I didn't know. I I always thought that their face might fall a certain way or their arm will slide. But no, they were saying that when that pop happens, it can be an entirely different way that that skeleton will be found later. Yeah. And they also very particularly specified that all of that hubbubaloo and moving underground would still not account for those stones being in mouths because the way that they were in there was so forceful that it was clear that it caused a break in the bones that wouldn't have occurred with this process. So I thought that was fascinating. But so in this particular documentary, there's a few different digs. One of, I thought, the most interesting ones was it was in West Ireland and there was a skeleton that was severely damaged and there was a large boulder put on top of the skeleton and Professor Mark Horton, who's seen many graves, had never seen anything like it. And interestingly, too, the body had been manipulated in a strange way and it looked almost like it was bound and there was an iron nail in a shoulder, one through the heart and one through the ankle. And Professor Horton even said, like, it looked like they were trying to keep it from rising very specifically, which I thought was interesting. And also in the same graveyard, it seemed as though there were some graves that had been kind of put on the outskirts and exiled from the others. And in these, they found stones in the mouth and that they were treated kind of almost as though they expected them to come back to life. And we're going to use the term vampire. And we'll get to this in a minute. But like we kind of go off on a, a tiny bit of tangent on vampires. I learned some very interesting things. I don't know about you, Amanda, where I was like, I didn't know that. Like, I didn't know that like when this came into our collective unconsciousness as a thing we became afraid of. Because there was a time, especially in like medieval times, where people really believed that you would come back to life when you died. Yeah. And they called those revenants, though, right? Like it wasn't it wasn't a zombie. It wasn't a vampire. They were called revenants, which feels scarier, by the way. That's a scarier name. It does. It does. And and what we learned, too, is that there's different societies now that are still practicing not this barbaric, but they still do certain rituals to make sure that their dead rest peacefully and don't have to reanimate. And I thought that was interesting, too. That didn't occur to me that that was something that is still done today. Sounds very stressful. Well, and also, I would imagine that if that was something that you believed happened, that sounds like a very scary belief. That would make the idea of dying scarier, but also the idea of losing someone scarier. And also, I think another important part to keep in mind with this is that it wasn't thought that you just came back to life, right? Like you came back to life to hurt people. And the idea was that you were going to come back and you were going to like wreak havoc. Yeah. And so there were people who would even put in their wills and stuff like that, like, this is how I would like you to dispose of my body because they were afraid that they would be reanimated and they didn't want to be. Yeah, some people wanted like chains around their coffin. Some people wanted to be weighted down with big boulders. Yes. And part of this comes from not understanding how the body decomposes, which again, like, I didn't know how the body decomposes. I'm going to talk about a story in a moment, but I, you know, I was like, oh, I didn't know how that worked. Yeah. You know, I would have thought the same thing. So when we were talking about various places still believing that dead loved ones can be reanimated, there were certain villages that 
thought that sometimes they would see their loved ones coming back. And there's all kinds of things. Some societies see ghosts. Some people believe that they see what the equivalent of a zombie would be, right? Some people see them as having blood and believe them to be a vampire. There's just so many different reasons why one would come back to life, I guess. So in a village in Stafford Hill, villagers dug up two peasants. And what they found was their bodies were still there, but the cloth that they put over their faces were stained with blood. So they all went crazy. They were all like, "Uh uh-oh, they are feasting on blood. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting. Also, I didn't know why there was blood on their mouth either. And I was like, oh, I guess that's what that I mean. Logically, I didn't think that's what it was. But like, doesn't that actually mean something else? Like, isn't that actually something else? It does. So it's a part of decomposition that happens once they've been sitting. After a certain point in time, the body's releasing so much that some stomach acids and things like that start to come up. A lot of the time, it'll look like blood. And what they thought as, oh my gosh, this person came back to life and has been feasting on our village was really, they've been sitting there decomposing and you just don't frequently dig up bodies and take a look at what they're doing. And then on top of it, they were talking about how there's a cloth on their face. And so the cloth probably made it look a lot worse than it was. Yeah, and it was probably the white shroud that people were buried in, which is why we have our modern ghost trope, right, of a ghost in a sheet because of the white shroud. We talked about that back in the day in our <laughs> ghost episode. I always got to do a callback. Love a callback. Yep, exactly. So one of the examples of when people started to get scared and they'd be like, well, I don't want to become a vampire. And again, we're saying vampire. They just thought someone that was reanimated. But I don't want to do that. So when I die, I want this. I want to be wrapped up in chains. I want to be burned. I want to be this because they really did not want to be reanimated and kill their loved ones. Yeah, yeah. And the idea of being a revenant was like, it seemed like it was a pervasive belief during this time. And so what's interesting is there's the kind of question of how did the idea of a revenant turn into a vampire, right? Because all of these tropes kind of from the deviant burials to like what they think is going to happen if you do become a revenant, it sounds like we tell vampires today. Exactly. Yeah. And so in Serbia, in January of 1732, the Supreme Command sent a regiment officer, Johannes Fluckinger, to a small village. That is my new favorite last name. We've gone through wonderful last names on the show, but I think Fluckinger is just... It's my new favorite. I mean, it sounds offensive, but not at all at the same time. You'd be like, fluck you. And like, what does that even mean? It's my favorite. But it also, I love it. Yeah, I like saying it. It, it, it rolls off the tongue very well, too. We're going to leave a moment right now for you to say the word Fluckinger. Wasn't it fun to say? It was so fun. Lindsay and I argued over who got to talk about Fluckinger because we wanted to be the one to say it over and over again. And by it, you mean Fluckinger. Fluckinger. So, okay, Fluckinger. So he was sent to a small village in Serbia and he didn't really want to go. There was a very particular reason why he was sent there. And we'll get there in a moment. But he really anticipated that he would get to this small village and completely disprove their theories. He didn't really seem to have a lot of respect from what I had read that he was really expecting to disprove everything that they saw. So the day that he arrived, the villagers had exhumed 40 people who had recently been buried and then identified 13 of them as vampires. Of course. When he got there, he saw that there had been a baby that had been half eaten by wild animals because it hadn't been buried properly. So that's another thing to keep in mind here is that they're also not burying these bodies deep in the ground. Yeah. They're obviously having shallow burials. And it's a three month period for these deaths, which is one of the strange parts. 
and it starts in September, which means it's relatively cool and the ground's cool. So a definite part to keep in mind as you hear this. So that baby's mother, Stana, had died in childbirth two months prior to Flockinger's arrival. So he's doing her autopsy. And it's actually really not so much of an autopsy as examining her exhumed corpse because it doesn't seem like he's like looking for cause of death, right? He's like poking around and seeing what to do. And so he describes her as quite complete and undecayed and that her organs still appeared to be fresh and her blood had not coagulated. Look, I'm not a mortician, a dead scientist, if you will, but I don't necessarily know like what the blood does and when it does and how environmental factors come into play. But in my brain, if someone had been dead for some time, I think I would expect their blood to be coagulated as well. But I'm also not a a medical professional like he was. So she also had extravascular blood in her stomach and chest cavity, which surprised him. And her skin seemed, quote, fresh and vivid, how we all want our skin to look. (laughs) Also, she was cold in September. (laughs) Yeah. And so again, like, yeah, it was September. And like, at this point, it's a few months after that. So it's a cooler month. Her body's likely been well preserved by just nature and or depending on like how deep her grave was. So he had expected to see like fully decayed bodies. And that's not what he found. And so after his examination, the villagers cut off the heads of the people they deemed vampires, burned them, and then threw them into a neighboring river. And it seems from all accounts that I saw that he wasn't like, nah, these aren't vampires. He was like, seems like it could be because it wasn't decomposition in the way that he was familiar with it. Right. And at the time, I guess, from what I understand, that was what they believed happened, right? Like you said, the coagulated blood, all of that. And they weren't taking into consideration the different variables between each burial. They were like, all of them should be the same at this time. And it's not because a lot of the temperature factor plays a big role in it. And if they're well kept, yeah, they're not going to decompose as fast. Yeah. Well, and also he was a military medical professional. So I would imagine the way that he encountered human bodies that were dead and that had been different. You know what I mean? Like, I I can't imagine he had been checking out exhumed bodies in the past. Now, you might be wondering, I was wondering, I'm sure Amanda was wondering, how did the villagers get to there's vampires in our town? Like, how do we get there? I'm there. You're there now. Okay. So per the villagers, the first person that was transformed was Arnod Powell. And he was a former soldier who had abandoned his post after he encountered a vampire at his post. And from what I saw, he wasn't from that village. That's where he went after he abandoned his post. And I mean, like, look, if you're trying to find like a quick and cool reason to abandon your post, a revenant or a vampire seems like a really convenient excuse, right? People aren't going to be like, you should have stayed, right? No. None of that nonsense. Like they'd been like, oh, okay. I mean, like, welcome. You live here now, right? So he moves to town, gets engaged to his neighbor's daughter, and then like mysteriously dies. However, folks in the village keep seeing him after he died. And so they'll see him and they'll say that sometimes he would take the form of a black dog. I'd like to know if it was just a black dog then. Yeah. Like, how do they go? That's him. We just started seeing a black dog come into our village. Yeah. This guy just died. It must be the same thing. Yeah. That's a real, that's a far jump to me, but okay. But so I hope they were nice to that dog. I don't think they were. So almost 20 people died after him in the next few months. And people thought that he was attacking humans and that he would feed on the livestock, particularly cattle. And the way that you would become a vampire would be, okay. it's kind of like a werewolf trope, if you will. You either were fed on werewolf or you ate meat oh. from cattle that was fed on. 
Got it. Got it. So a real mad cow disease kind of vibe, right? Which I thought that was an interesting, like, how to become a vampire. That's not in our movies currently. It is not a beef burger, beef vampire, (laughs) a beef burger vampire. I can't wait for you to write your novel. But also what this makes me think of, too, is the show What We Do in the Shadows, because they don't just have the typical vampire. They also have a different kind of vampire. And funny enough, one of the archaeologists that was talking about the um, Ireland ones Mm -hmm. in my head, I I was laughing as he was talking at certain points because I couldn't get Colin Robinson out of my head. He looks like him. You're right. He does. And he speaks like him. When he's in the car at one point, he's like, he talks about how he likes to be right. And he's hoping like that he's right on the age of the bones. And I was like, that's an energy vampire right there. (laughs) Maybe he is. You just added him. Yeah. And if you haven't seen that show, you have to. Yeah, I was shown it. Now I have to show it to someone else. I actually did show it to you. Yeah. Yeah. No, you did. I haven't watched much of it, but I've watched enough to, to know who exactly you're talking about. So, okay, the villagers, they think that Paul is a vampire. So they dig up his body, which if you were a vampire, are you reburying yourself every night? Is that the idea? Because I'd like, are you, wouldn't you notice they go back into the ground? How? And how do they bury themselves again? Look, I don't know. But so they dig him up and they stake him with an iron stake. Now let's talk about decomposition again. Now they stake this corpse that is likely probably a little bloated and hasn't done that exploding thing underground yet. Yeah. So it bleeds and air releases. And air probably isn't just going to, re- or I say get air, but gas is released, not just from the open wound, but probably from his mouth. Yeah. So they think that he groans. So it's just reinforcing what they're thinking, right? Yeah. The villagers dig him up they stake him and then they claim that he growled twice which would be really scary if you didn't know right yes yeah if you didn't know how any of this worked like i would think that right like even even now if i was in the habit of stabbing corpses and it made a sound like that i would think it was growling okay so i bet you're wondering oh okay fluckinger like went and saw this town they dug up a bunch of people they stabbed this corpse it groaned as it do that doesn't make sense on how the whole world knows about vampires well fluckinger wrote a report the fluckinger report the fluckinger report an abundance of skeletons (laughs) It's a long title for this episode. But so it gets picked up by the newspapers and they spread it around like wildfire. And so then everybody knows this kind of story. And because there's a medical part of it, people really believe it. Okay, yes. If you look up the Fluckinger report, all that comes up is various history of vampires. I love it. I absolutely love it. Oh my gosh. Now, if someone made a vampire movie about Fluckinger becoming a vampire, I would rent so many theaters. Can I can I just tell you that the name for that movie needs to be The Flucking of Fluckinger? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm so sorry, but I'm also not sorry. Can you draw that for me, please? I want like a mysterious eyes and then like the teeth. Oh yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get me. I got you. So <laughs> to continue, the fear continued in Romania. And when I was saying that people in, in certain areas of the world still do little rituals and things like that to make sure that their dead rest peacefully, in Romania, some of them do. And they circle the graves of the recently deceased with things like incense and they bring them food so like they have a safe and happy travel to the next life, which kind of, to me, it sounded almost like Day of the Dead-esque, in a sense, where you're bringing food to your dead, right? Kind of, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of cultures that honor their dead 
Americans are really like, here's some flowers. You have a funeral, you have a wake. But I really don't think that we have a lot of like nationally based culture, ancestral appreciation holidays, which makes me very sad. Right. So understandably, the daughter of the deceased man complained that they desecrated the body, which anyone should be angry if they did that to your father's remains, right? My immediate thing was like, is this legal? No, I don't believe it was because it was not. It ended up being discussed globally because it was such an interesting story. And they're like, he was a Maroi. He was coming back to life. And they're like, well, you you can't go and desecrate a body. In most cases, the rituals were not reported. And I didn't really see an outcome. So there's a ton of pictures of the grave, too, when they opened it online, when you look up Petri Toma. And it's crazy that they, from what I saw, there's a vampologist blog that had a picture, it looks like, of the actual grave itself. And it's pretty much hammered into. Like, they they broke it pretty good. So I don't know what the outcome ended up being. I'm sure each party thought that they were absolutely correct. For sure. For sure. Amanda, do you remember episode six, Elizabeth Bathory? I do. Bathed and clothed in red? Yes, that that was her. So when you talk about Elizabeth Bathory, also known as Elizabeth Bathory, she's often discussed as a vampire, right? Like I saw it over and over and over and over, like vampire of history over and over and over and over. Now, the existence of vampires didn't rise to popular culture until after the 1730s, right after (laughs) Bluggingers report. However, Bathory died more than a century before that. Isn't that interesting? I was like, huh. And then the first account of Elizabeth bathing in blood was published in 1850, which was clearly obviously after the popularization of vampires. So the lens in which we saw what she did is based on how people, you know, viewed her actions after, right? Like it was like, right, people were viewing her actions in a zeitgeist other than her own. Which, you know, I love that word. I love to talk about it. But it's the idea that like we, you know, we do it all the time, right? We view things, you know, 10, 20, 30, 500 years ago from our lens today. But they did that with her with vampires, too. And it's interesting, too, because, right, like they're talking about vampires being reanimated corpses. So it's fascinating that they either A, ignore that part, or they assume that Bathory was a reanimated corpse to be able to have done such terrible things. Which I was like, what? And this isn't like anything we saw anywhere. This is us like piecing together information we learned and comparing it to what we already knew about Bathory when she died. And then also the, you know, the rise of vampires and, and, you know, popular culture. And also we talked about the end of the episode that we never knew where Bathory was buried and that they didn't tell the locals. And I wonder if the reason that they did that, right, we thought they would just like fuck with their corpse because they were like, you screw you, you killed a bunch of women, right? Right. Or, or that they didn't want her buried in their area. Yeah. It didn't even occur to me that there would be deviant burials because they thought that she could be reanimated. But I don't think that that's altogether crazy to think that that may have been something that they thought would have happened. So when they say that they don't know where she's buried, it may be either A, to prevent a deviant burial or two, because they there was a deviant burial. Right. Like they could have like taken her apart, <laughs> which that blows my mind. That Yeah, that's crazy. It's weird to me that, yeah, the term vampire or what a vampire is, the essence of a vampire, wasn't around when she was around. She dies. And then later on, everyone's like, oh, now that we've learned, you know what? Who was a vampire? Bathory. I bet she was a vampire. Yeah. Yeah. And we know, and the thing is, though, like for like mm-hmm. the story that is commonly held that she died after being walled up, right? That's not a vampire. 
right? She would have been a body that was buried or not even a, a revenant, whichever, you know, whatever term you want to use. But I just thought that was very interesting to think about how he painted yeah. her in a certain light. And, you know, history does that. A little little vampire skelly knowledge for you. If you have any weird skeleton facts or you've heard of skeletons in strange places, we'd love to hear that story. Hit us up on social media or email us your story. We'd love to see it. Or better yet, join our bat bonfire and we can discuss it. Yeah. And speaking of, we're going to do a quick run through about Patreon real quick. If you don't want to hear about it, that's cool. We'll see you next week. If you do want to hear about it, it'll be about a minute or two. We're also super excited because we launched our Patreon and we have four different tiers. The secret's finally out. Woo! (laughs) The tiers are a lot of fun and they start at only a dollar. So if you want to support the show, head on over to our Patreon link. It'll be on our website. And our first tier is only a dollar and it's called the Mittens tier. (laughs) So if you've listened to all of our episodes, you'll probably be familiar with what we named our tiers. And Mittens includes access to the Bat Bonfire, which is our Patreon-only Facebook group. We're super excited about that. Yes! We've been looking forward to doing this for a little while now. Yeah, and we can actually, you know, connect with you guys. We can talk about the episodes. We can talk about cases that you're interested in, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Our second tier is my personal favorite because (laughs) it was the name that I gave it, (laughs) The Dump Ghost. So (laughs) what it includes is access to the Bat Bonfire, and then you also get a sticker when you join. So we tend to send everything out at the end of the month that you join. And it's a special sticker that you only get if you're a Dump Ghost or in a higher tier. And then another cool thing is you also get a sticker every year on your Patreon anniversary. Yeah. And it's not going to be like, oh, you get a True Creep sticker every year. It'll be a sticker that's kind of like show related. And this one we designed with show in mind. It's our design. So I think that's really fun that you can only get these in one place. I love it. Our next tier is Fire Yeti, $8 a month. And you get access to the Bat Bonfire, that sick sticker, that sick anniversary sticker. And you'll get a custom annual fall card so long as you join by September 15th. So we can get them out in time to you. Yeah. But it's going to be based on like the full year's worth of episodes. And we're super pumped about that. So we already have ideas. So many ideas. And the idea is like, we kind of look a little piece of True Creeps art that you could hold and treasure forever. And... Last but not least is my favorite tier, the Vortex Bouncer. And for $25 a month, you get everything we said before, Bat Bonfire access, sticker, anniversary sticker, that sick card. And you get a t-shirt when you join and as well as a t-shirt every year on your Patreon anniversary month. So obviously different t-shirts, but the t-shirt design that we have is just chef's kiss, chef's kiss. Very excited. The only way to get this t-shirt design is to get it as a Patreon perk, if you will. Oh, and for current patrons, we'll post what everything looks like so you'll get to see it first. Yeah. So if you want to support the show, again, our link will be on all of our social media. It'll be on our website, truecreeps.com. We'd love to have you in our bat bonfire and we can't wait to chat with everyone. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps.